1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and Ayaz Akhtar is joining us once again so that we can continue our discussion about obsolete technology, the List of obsolete tech that showed up on an article that was at Web Designer Depot. Uh, this was a listener request. Is how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Very well. It's almost as if we didn't just stop recording a previous episode seconds ago and started it up again. Isn't it's it? It's almost just like that. It just yeah. yeah I'm having a weird sense of déjà vu. Yeah, or me too. Something. Maybe it's just a uh, continuous vu, since it's not really déjà. At I any think rate, Vu
1: is a great band. I listen to them all the time. I think they, they cover are, NXS.
0: They are pretty good. Yeah, uh, I saw them on the Voo. At any rate, uh, we're going to be talking more about more obsolete technology. Uh, we had a previous discussion where we went through list the list uh, item by item, and we started debating and discussing whether or not the the things that were on there in fact belong on a list of obsolete tech. Some of them we certainly think do belong there, and some of them we were a little, you know, we questioned whether or not they belonged on that list. So let's continue. The first one for this episode is the idea of a huge mainframe computer, which I think we can say is pretty obsolete. Yeah,
1: I'm just thinking of, like, the idea of one computer that's that large. Today, you'd be thinking of just server racks, lots and lots of servers, and they're acting as one computer. So if you want to get technical, is it a, well, no, it's not really a mainframe, but it's a giant cluster of a machine.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like IBM's Watson is a good example. It's got thousands of processors. And if you ever look at the actual physical um, uh, computer, it's really a collection of, of server-like computers that are all networked together that act as a single entity, like you were saying, Iaz. But it's not just one gigantic machine that takes up the entire floor of a building. You know, back in those days, mainframes had components like vacuum tubes that were necessary because the transistor hadn't been invented or miniaturized yet. And today in the era of miniaturization, we no longer have to rely on those antiquated huge systems. Also, like the old mainframe days, a lot of those machines used a time sharing function, which for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with this type of computing, time sharing essentially meant that uh, there might be multiple terminals all hooked up to the same computer. But at any given moment, the computer would only be working on one set of calculations for from one terminal, and everyone else would be waiting. However, most computers were moving at such an incredible speed that it almost felt like you were having you know continuous a continuous experience as you worked on the the computer. It didn't feel like you were actually only getting us a, a, a segment of time each time. Uh, at least if it was a significantly fast computer. So. Both of those things are no longer really the case these days. So uh, I agree that it should be considered obsolete, although we still have huge computers like supercomputers are still obviously a thing. And there's still a real drive for computer scientists to make the next fastest computer.
1: Yeah, but, but they're not typically this one giant monolith. They're no. just these bl- clusters of machines that work together.
0: I, I do wish, kind of, that there could be one that's just a giant monolithic computer. Like, <laughs> that's how they built it. Like It was just this incredibly fast computer that's in a single form factor, sort of like deep thought in uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But uh, wishing does not make it so.
1: So you're right. You should just buy like 30 or 40 servers and then put their parts inside of a refrigerator <laughs> and make your own mainframe. Just yeah. call it a mainframe.
0: I might have to figure out a really good cooling system. Perhaps I'll I'll keep the refrigerator working as a refrigerator in order to make sure that the servers don't overheat. How's that not a thing yet? If that's not a thing, that should be a thing. A refrigerator that doubles as a server rack? Heck yeah. Patent pending. <laughs> Strickland Actar Enterprises. You heard it from us first. All right. Well, uh, then we have typewriters. Uh, I as do you know what a typewriter is? I do know what a typewriter is. It's that thing you'd use before you had a word processor. And
1: uh, my dad would type all the time. So I remember hearing that little thwack, 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 thwack noise, yeah. which sounded more like a metal key smacking a piece of rubber, that rubber roller. And then when you had the more automated versions where you could hit backspace and it would like remove the whole word, mm-hmm. that sound echoes in my mind. But yeah, back back in the old days, the typewriter, that's the noise. If you have an iPhone, when you start typing on it, that's the noise it's emulating.
0: Yeah. You have no idea what I'm talking it's about. Skeomorphism is what that's called, where we take something that has been obsolete and apply it to new technology just for really aesthetic purposes. Uh Yeah, the typewriter chases its roots all the way back to the 18th century, all the way back to the 1700s. But really, you're talking about the 1800s before standardization came in and the early 20th century before it really became popular. So while there were... Predecessors to the modern typewriter all the way back in the late 1700s. It wasn't until the 1900s that we really settled on a, a form factor that, that was popularized throughout the world. And those early models were purely mechanical. Uh, they, they worked, you know, you had a system of levers and, and, uh, uh little pivot systems where you would press down a key and it would cause a, a arm holding a letter to come up, strike a ribbon, that had ink on it uh, against a piece of paper and that would be what would leave the the letter there. You would also usually have a system where the ribbon itself would get pulled by just a tiny amount so that way you wouldn't consistently be hitting the same part of the ribbon. Obviously, if you did that, you would very quickly run out of ink on that spot. Although there were some typewriters where you had to actually physically reapply ink to the ribbon. Um, also, you had to worry about those little typing arms getting tangled up with each other. in some of the older ones, I had a, an antique typewriter where that would happen. If you typed faster than a certain speed, it would start to get locked up, which was frustrating. Uh, IBM would introduce sort of the golf ball style typewriter, the one that had all the letters on a round, uh, structure. And that was the one that had a very distinct sound when you were type. It just kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the clackety clack was replaced by a dish sort of sound as you were typing with those and word processors came along. A lot of typewriters and word processors were sort of combo things, but word processors allowed you to, uh, to, to create your documents, uh, in a, an electronic format before converting it to a physical format. Um, I actually had to use typewriters quite a bit in my early career with a, a, uh, Consulting firm, because we had all these different forms that we didn't have electronic versions for. We just had physical forms, and you had to put it through into a typewriter and type things out on it. Uh, Now you went to law school, right, Ayaz? That's correct. Did you ever have to use a typewriter in that respect? No, but when I went to law school, it's like the
1: let's see, the 2000s. So we we had computers and printers and things, and a PDF. We could always use a PDF to fill out things, but yeah, I didn't have to use it in school very often, but I do. You just reminded me how if you wanted to spy on somebody, you could just take the ribbon that was used and you could read the words because it was, it's clearly printed on there because there's this ribbon of text and you could basically find anything you wanted to. I always thought that was really fascinating when it came to like this evidence that's being left behind constantly.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. If you were using a typewriter, then you were leaving a record of exactly what you were typing. It would also allow people to see what a terrible typist you were. This <laughs> <laughs> is true. And see all these mistakes and think, huh, they totally hit that backspace button for this one. Uh, yeah, the backspace button often would use some sort of liquid paper type uh, substance in order to cover up whatever it was you just typed so that you could type a new word in its place. Uh, it wasn't exactly undetectable. You could always tell when you would get a sheet of typed paper where someone had to hit the backspace quite a bit. You could just peel it off if
1: you wanted to see the original letter. And the other thing was, if I remember right, effectively the the typewriter would remember what you had just typed. So if you're going to, like, let's say you, you typed a T by accident, just the white ribbon would come up and the T would hit again. So you just had this perfect spaced T, the white one over the black one. So right. it was pretty visible if yeah. you knew what you were looking at.
0: Yeah, so, so not, not, uh, flawless and uh, eventually printers became inexpensive enough and computers became popular enough that the typewriter largely disappeared. You can still find it in some offices. I know that there are, you know, medical facilities that still have typewriters. There are still some companies like consulting firms or whatever. Any, any company that's using documentation where they, they don't necessarily keep an electronic version on hand may still have a typewriter, but they tend to be the, uh, the oddity these days, not something that is uh, commonly a, a you know necessary piece of equipment in your average office. So I agree that it belongs on the obsolete list, at least here in the United States. There are probably some other parts of the world where typewriters are still a very important piece of technology, but not so much here. They're definitely obsolete,
1: but again, one of those, another one of those fascinating pieces of machinery. When you, when you were talking about them being purely mechanical, when you see the levers moving, when you see the arms hitting the, uh, the ribbon, it's actually quite a, a feat of engineering considering what it was. It's like this movable type setup. It's like, okay. Yeah. So we're going to have this easy way to print. If I just punch these keys, just a, a cool little bit of history.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things that kind of harkens back to the aesthetics of, uh, steampunk in a way. It's this idea of, Intricate mecha- purely mechanical technology, where it doesn't have the the kind of sterile electronic approach. I think that's what a lot of people, you know, why a lot of people find steampunk so appealing is that it has this kind of, you know, the whole, all the working moving pieces. It gives it a character that that electronics tend to lack. So uh yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. How about the next one? Dial up modems. Oh man, uh, definitely
1: obsolete. And if you're using a dial up modem, you probably want to upgrade this. I hope you would. Yeah. Because they are, they can be finicky. I had, I remember I had my 2400 baud modem. Yeah, know? I had one of those and I was, uh, I was dialing into AOL back then or actually it was AOL because I remember they had like five phone numbers for their mm-hmm. servers and then you dial in and hear that noise. You'd connect and then you're like, mom, no, don't touch the phone no, no, mom. and then you'd be disconnected. Right. Those are the old days.
0: Yeah, the same thing happened to me whenever I would try and call into BBSs to the point where I think we finally got a separate phone line just for the computer so that way we didn't have to worry about it anymore. But uh, yeah, uh, the dial-up modem's much slower data transfer rates than any other format. Uh, and also that is where that distinctive sound comes in, that weird, staticky... Uh, pinging, buzzing noise. That whenever I see it on a movie or television show, I think, where, when is this supposed to be set? There was actually, we talked about in our last episode, uh, an episode of the popular series Sleepy Hollow, recently had characters access the internet through a dial-up modem, and I thought, really, Sleepy Hollow is. I mean, I realize they've got a an 18th century. Uh, former British Revolution soldier walking around, but are they really that far behind the times where people still have dial-up? Um, but it does have that distinctive sound. It's one of those that you can kind of tell the generation someone belongs to, because if they don't know what that sound is, <laughs> then then you know, all right, so I can subtract 10 years from the age I thought you were, because uh, you never encountered this noise, whereas those of us of a certain age are very familiar with it, and it just harkens back that time where, you know, you could connect to the to some sort of network service, and you would try and download things. And even a basic uh, text document would take time to ac- access because the, the data transfer speeds were so slow.
1: Yeah, and you basically, back then, uh, I mean, you think animated GIFs were annoying now. <laughs> back then... It would take forever for them to load, and you would see like you know Felix the Cat going back and forth, and you knew, uh, th- like the sites would be done by college students or something because they had like the T one lines at- in their dorms, and you'd sign in to get to this page because you want to really know everything about the Beatles because you don't know anything about them yet, so you want to read about them, and then you hear the MIDI playing, after about like what maybe about, I'd say a good minute of loading, and then this music scares the heck out of you, yeah, because you did not expect it back then. Uh so yeah it was it was definitely a different world with dial-up modems incredibly slow although when, what was it was a 56k that was like the fastest you could go on dial-up <laughs> and it was like this is amazing nothing yeah. will ever be faster than this Well, and, yeah
0: that reminds me of when yeah everything back in those days where you would look at the specs of a computer and you would just say man this is way more than i need I will never require all the horsepower slash storage slash whatever that this machine has. It's just kind of quaint because now my, my, my phone dwarfs all of those specs. And speaking of storage, speaking of, uh, you know, data storage, zip drives are on the list, which was a product from a company called iOmega and, uh, zip drives, uh, well, first of all, I think we have to cover the idea of floppy drives in the first place. Floppy drives uh, are different from hard drives in that these were portable storage media that used uh, a magnetic storage to, to save your work on a computer. And you would end up putting it into a drive and save your work. And then you could take the disk out and go to a different computer that had the exact same programs as the first one and pull that work back up. Uh, obviously, if it didn't have the exact same programs as the computer that you used in the first place, it didn't do you any good to have the, <laughs> the storage because there wasn't an internet yet for you to go and get that program. Um, but zip drives were supposed to be a solution because floppy drives had a limitation on how much data they could hold. So for example, the three and a half inch disk, which although it was a floppy disk was uh, in hard plastic. Much uh, more floppy. rigid
1: than the yeah. five and a, was a five and a quarter. That was the one that was physically very floppy.
0: Yes, Uh this the floppy. The term floppy really confused people. I remember my dad coming home one day. He was teaching a word processing course at college. He he was uh, he's an, a professor, and he taught this word processing course, and it was like an uh, adult education course. And he says, yeah, people just don't get it. I was explaining to everyone that the five and a quarter inch disks were called floppy disks. And one of my students immediately folded his in half and put it into his pocket. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, don't do that is the moral of that story. But yeah, even the three and a half inch disk, despite the fact that it was rigid, was in fact a floppy disk. It could only hold 1.44 megabytes. Later on, you could get some that could hold 2.88 megabytes megabytes that's that was considered a lot of storage back in the day so, so for zip- like for
1: for some kind of frame of reference like i think a, an mp3 like yeah. a like two and a half minute song is at least i'd say could be three to four megabytes that's on the small side yeah so that's one song could maybe fit or like maybe like 30 pictures if you were getting jpegs back then
0: well i recorded an hour long podcast with a friend of mine last night and it was uh it was about a megabyte per minute, so that's about a 60 megabyte um file that came out of it. So that would mean I would need somewhere around between 50 and 60 three and a half inch disks if I were able to somehow divide that file up into into equal chunks and be able to save it in a meaningful way. It would take 50 to 60 of these disks to do it. Now zip disks were supposed to be uh, the next step it was it was a a high storage medium compared to the uh, the three and a half or five and a quarter five and a quarter could hold even less than a three and a half could the zip disks could hold depending upon the type you had 100 250 or 750 megabytes so significantly more than what these other disks could have but uh, it came out, pretty late in the game and there was something else right on the horizon as the zip drive came out that completely negated it. And that was the rewritable CD, the re- rewritable compact disc. Uh, when compact disc first came out, they were read only. I mean, that was the, and there were a lot of reasons for that. Pretty much the same reasons you encounter for any kind of medium when it first come out, the established powers that be don't want you to be able to write to that medium because they're afraid it means you're going to steal all their stuff right so same thing's true with dvds same thing's true with uh blu-ray same thing's true with the, even vcrs and the vhs they didn't want to allow that to be a writable technology for a really long time uh, so cds when they did come out they were able to hold a lot more data they were actually. Eventually priced lower on a cost per megabyte basis. And once you could have more data on a CD at a lower cost than it would be for a comparable number of zip discs, it was game over. Uh, and what I thought was really funny is that PC World named the zip disc the 15th worst product of all time in 2006. But then in 2007, PC World said it was the 23rd best tech product of all time. <laughs> so what, what is, it, is Is it the best or the worst? It was one of the best things
1: that ever came out for <laughs> computing. And here's why, right? Like you were saying, we had these 1.44 megabyte disks. Uh, when I stood in line to get Windows 95 upgrade, I had 13 floppy disks given to me in this box, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I wish one day there was the ability to have. A lot of data on a small disk. And The zip disks were about the same size uh, as the three and a half inch disk, a little thicker. When it came to the the, the, the I guess the height dimension, I don't know sure. how you want to say that. So the, it was in a very familiar format. Uh, there was it was so popular to the point where a number of computer manufacturers were including internal zipped drives in their computers. There was this click of death that would happen after a while. You just hear this, this click and you knew your disc was fried. It's over. You're not getting anything out of this. And one of the bigger problems with CDs being writable and rewritable was there was this giant nightmare of CD R, CD plus R, minus R. Like then there's like this plus and minus RW. There was sure. enough of this bizarre incompatibility with rewritable discs because you'd have a proper drive that matched a proper disk. And unlike a zip disk, which only fit in a zip drive, you could get the wrong kind of optical media in these CD burners. So th- I think that prolonged the life of the zip disk to the point where a 250 megabyte version and then a 750 megabyte version showed up. But in the interim, these things were pretty much everywhere. I remember like there was an actual use for the parallel port that wasn't a printer. I was so <laughs> excited about that. <laughs> um, it was, I thought it was a really great way to have uh portable programs. I used to have, I used to run like Claris office on it or is it Claris works. Do You remember this program? I, I know of it. I never used it. I actually, it was the zip disc was fast enough to run programs. So in my limited hard drive space, I would just be swapping out discs zip disks with different mm-hmm. programs way back in the day before hard drive media like I mean hard drives were really expensive back then so this was I think it was it was pretty freaking awesome uh IOmega probably wishes it had won, but CDR CDs had to win because they were just so cheap the yeah. burning technology became so
0: low cost but Well I I also one other thing that uh I didn't think to mention when you were talking about how the uh, CD did have some drawbacks. The other one, of course, was just the right speed. Uh, The early writable CDs, the right speed was pretty slow. And so it would take a really long time to burn a CD. And uh, I remember, like, this could be a big issue if you happen to be, say, let's say that you are a a musician and you wanted to go ahead and just sort of produce just enough CDs. So you're going to go play a show and you want to have something for people who like your music to take home with them and you want to you know create some copies of CDs uh, you know it could take a long time to burn a significant number and and be a, even though the CD medium ended up getting pretty cheap the actual production of it could be a real pain in the in the neck so i think that probably also helped for a while it took a while for those write speeds to get fast enough and not be prohibitively expensive for it to be uh, something effective. Like if you had all the time in the world, sure, it's no big deal. But if you wanted to produce a lot of stuff in a short amount of time, that was a, that was a big drawback.
1: Hilariously, uh, CDs and, uh, not CDs, but CD drives used to have, like they used to boast giant graphics like 48x read speed and 4x burn speed. I can't remember the last time I've actually seen a drive that had any boastful words on it because they're almost, Optical media is so dated that no one's using it. Right. They had SD cards and everything. It's just so, it, it was such a different world and how slow those things would burn. Just, oh, such a long time ago.
0: It is kind of funny to think that even though it's not on the list, optical media could almost be on a warning system for this because the solid state media has really taken over uh, to a large extent. Uh, now that we've seen solid state prices continue to drop, it, they're still going to have to drop for a solid state hard drive to be, uh, you know, to be something that the average person is going to go and buy as opposed to a spinning hard drive, because uh, it does add a, a pretty significant chunk of change to a bottom line price of a, of a machine. But when it gets to the point where it's negligible, uh, it'll be really interesting to see if optical media sticks around, you know, how much longer it sticks around or if it ends up fading into, you know, joining the same list. Um How about tape drives? We just talked about zip drives. Let's go even further back, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember uh, having an old computer that one of the accessories you could get was a cassette drive. Like You could get a cassette drive that would allow you to run programs from cassette or to save data onto cassette. But we didn't have that uh, because we had a even newer technology the five and a quarter inch disc drive but uh but that was definitely something that was part of the home computer system for a while where uh tape drives that were either uh reel-to-reel or cassette based uh, depending upon the model although reel-to-reel was really something you saw more in like research institutions and stuff and less for the home market but uh, i think it is pretty safe to say that the tape drive is obsolete it,
1: definitely obsolete uh, the tape drive was a great way very cheap backup uh, the tapes were very low cost it was incredibly slow but the capacities were just enormous at one point it was like the pretty much the only way you could back up your real pc yeah. unless you wanted to break it out like you were saying with lots and lots of discs but definitely obsolete i don't know anybody who is actively backing up their company with tape
0: drives yeah, the, the last company I worked for, uh, before How Stuff Works, actually, no, two companies back, um, many, many years ago, they were using tape drives to do backups of their system then. I expect that these days they used a totally different methodology. Uh, and we've seen a lot of different technologies come into play that have replaced the tape drive, just cloud storage, uh, being able to essentially outsource your backups. To some sort of large company like like Amazon is a great example where you could have your backup stored in the cloud. Uh, thus, even if you had some sort of catastrophic failure of the equipment in your office, you could still have access to the data that that equipment had generated. Um, you know, that, that has pretty much negated the need for any sort of tape deck. Uh, and. As for the home market, obviously, there is not really any point to it anymore. In fact, this also illustrates something else and another issue with obsolete technology, which is that the stuff that we create one day is not going to be accessible to us because we will no longer be relying on those same methods to produce the, the work, to save the work and to access the work. And this is a real issue. This is one of those things that people talk about when they say, you can't just assume that a 100 years into the future we'll have the same sort of access to the stuff we're creating today because the technology will be significantly different and will either be incompatible or the media that we're using today won't last long enough for that data to be accessible into the future. That's really an actual problem that engineers and scientists and researchers look into. Like how do you ensure that? That we have a continuation of our our knowledge from one media to the next or one medium to the next, I should say, um, because you never know what will be inaccessible tomorrow. Well, thankfully,
1: because of the great historical documentary, uh, Saved by the Bell, we know that if you bury a VHS yearbook and you leave it there for 25 years, there will be a VCR in the principal's office later on to watch it. So that that problem has been solved, Jonathan.
0: Oh, well, I, I am happy to hear that Z- Zach has, uh, looked out for us. It was Zach, right? Well, well, Zach was on the VHS tape.
1: So the future, <laughs> future blonde kid who looked just like Zach and the same set of racially diverse group of friends there, uh, they also <laughs> were very, very happy that the same principal had a VCR attached. You're totally right there. If you're going to leave, this is just, here's, here's a, a tip that nobody ever needs. If you're going to leave something in a time capsule, make sure you have the reader of the media available with instructions, with all the cables, because otherwise it's kind of pointless. This just reminds me of my tape drive, which was also made by iOmega that I wanted to use later on where I had to get a, I want to say SCSI to USB adapter because, oh, wow! Yeah, you just because I needed the data like wow not not really i didn't really need the data but i thought i did back
0: then so there you go okay well how about slide projectors yeah that's obsolete i mean who's getting slides made right where would you go to process it there i'm sure there are only a few places in the united states where that are actually still processing film for slides i mean you know digital projection is so common i mean we've One of the things we've seen at the past few CESs are these Pico projectors where you can just have a projector that fits inside your pocket and you take it out and connect it to even something like a smartphone and be able to project a large screen version of whatever it is you want to see. There's very little reason why you would need a slide projector unless you were doing it as really like an art installation, like it's you're specifically doing it as part of the experience of whatever it is you're trying to convey.
1: Another one of those great devices, again, watch Mad Men if you want to see. Basically, a lot of the stuff we talked about in these two episodes, if you watch Mad Men, you're going to see a lot of these. (laughs) Like, what's a typewriter look like? What does this sound like? Yeah, a slide projector, uh, one of the best episodes of Mad Men called The Carousel. But I always wanted one of these things when I was a kid because the projectors in general fascinated me when I was a kid because of this idea of having an unlimited screen size, mm-hmm. because all you needed was this one box and it wasn't that big and it wasn't that heavy because we had CRTs back then uh, that you could project this giant image. But then you'd always have the, in the horrifying slideshow, where it's like, this is our family vacation, right? Which now takes place over Facebook or on somebody just showing you their pictures on their phone. Like, Hey, here's the 86 pictures I took yeah. when I visited the, uh, the salt
0: quarry. Exactly. Here here are pictures. I'm not going to necessarily give you context or I will give you more context than you ever wanted to know and I expect you to sit here and be prisoner until I'm done. It was a lot easier with slide projectors really because it was just impolite to stand up off someone's couch and say I'm leaving now. That's <laughs> uh, true.
1: Or you'd have the image projected on you. That's the worst part. Right,
0: right. Yeah, the other thing about slide projectors I remember two things really. Uh the carousel slides there would. This just takes me back to my elementary school days because that's what we would use to look at, uh, like science slides. Uh, I remember tons of of classes where we used a slide projector, and I remember the carousels were prone to two things. One was that you would eventually have a slide get jammed, so it would stop the entire presentation while the teacher tried to uh, fix the jam. And often that would even mean removing the carousel, which would require us to, again, find our way back to the proper slide so that we could continue on our journey of education. And the second was that invariably at least one slide would be loaded either backwards or upside down. So you would either get uh, text that was flipped or you would more likely see something from the point of view of someone in Australia. And, uh, while that definitely added levity to the classroom, it certainly wasn't the most effective means of getting information across to students. Yeah, extremely,
1: so. extremely antiquated and
0: definitely obsolete. Yes. Uh, however, I will say that that backwards image, we still see a remnant of that today with people who take selfies using a, a phone where it flips the image so it, it acts like a mirror. And then you end up getting these backwards t-shirts and things. I saw a lot of that. Uh, we're recording this the same week in the United States as there was an election. So I saw a lot of my friends post selfies of them wearing the I have voted uh, sticker, but the sticker was backwards because they were using that specific mode to take the photo. So I'm glad that that still lives. Like Even if it's not a physical slide, we can still send people images that have been flipped 180 degrees.
1: Yeah, and we have, we have the equivalent of jammed images. It's like when a slide doesn't load in the slides show when you're trying to go, uh, in Facebook and you're going to the next image, you're like, why isn't it
0: loading? It's yeah. jammed. It's jammed. Yeah. And then you have to click on the picture or whatever. Yeah. That, you're right. Our, our lives are still just as miserable. It's just we've got a different means of, uh, producing the, the, the problems now. Um, we've already talked about floppy disks, so we'll skip that one, but the Polaroid cameras made up the last item on the original list. And uh, if you're talking about cameras that are made by Polaroid, that's misleading because that company is still making cameras. They're still making digital cameras. They're even still making instant film cameras, or at least what they call instant film cameras. Some of those instant film cameras are technically not instant film. It's a digital camera with its own printer. So it prints the image as opposed to captures it on film that then develops. Uh, the, but they do still have an instant film camera called the PIC, the PIC 300 that takes instant film. So it's actually still a thing. And in fact, I think the reason why this is on the obsolete list is that for a long time, it looked like Polaroid was just going to get out of that game entirely. But the nostalgia for the instant film photo demanded that there be a product to fulfill that desire. So this is an example of something that people weren't ready to let go of, I think. Yeah, I think this might be
1: with the, uh, the turntables kind of thing that like this is, this still exists. Yeah. There's a set number of people who want to use this. There's a very long documentary on Polaroid's final years. I believe it's on Netflix currently, which I tried to watch, but the amount of sentimentality was so great. Uh, so much emotion of people crying because people aren't printing out pictures. I had to turn it off. Uh, but when it comes to Polaroid cameras, I, I loved it when I was a kid. You know, you, you would try to shake the thing and, and you try to see the image develop. That was a, a really cool idea. And then when you find out the science behind it and how it works, how this this thing was being developed right in this this box, that was insane. Yeah. Because it just seemed like, oh, wait, that's how stuff – that's how it works. It's not a big deal. But to, to know more about it as I'm older, it's pretty cool. But I do you see yourself going out and buying a Polaroid instant film camera or instant camera because it's not film?
0: I I don't see myself going out and buying any cameras at all anymore, because now I've gotten to the point where I used to be one of those guys who I liked the standalone devices that were dedicated to doing one thing, because usually they did that one thing really, really well. And the stuff like smartphones could do lots of stuff, but they didn't tend to do all of it really well. It just did it Okay. Uh, but now smartphones, either the smartphones have gotten to a level of quality that I am now happy with, or my standards have dropped enough where I don't care anymore. But either way, it's the same destination. Now, a smartphone for me acts as everything. It's my camera. It's my MP3 player. It's the way I access streaming media. It's the way I text people or interact with social media. Once in a blue moon, it's the way I talk to someone because <laughs> I hardly ever make phone calls anymore. But uh yeah, so I, I don't see myself going out and getting an instant film camera. How about you? Are you are you nostalgic enough where that's something you you need to have in your life?
1: I'm I'm probably more likely to find a way to hack a Kindle for it to display my images on like a on like a loop. Then I would be uh, a candidate to get a Polaroid instant camera. Because for me, the, the coolest thing about printed photography is that it requires no power source. It doesn't glow at night when you leave the room like a digital picture frame. So, uh, but I, I'm probably going to hack together a solution of a digital picture frame that uses e ink. Then I would probably get this Polaroid thing. I'm not going to bother with instant film because it's yeah. just not,
0: it's not, uh, it just, I'm not that sentimental when it comes to that. Well, plus, I mean, you'd have to go and, and buy refills of it, right? I mean, that's the other thing is that you can't just offload the pictures and then make space so that you can take more pictures. You actually have to physically replace the, the medium because it runs out. So that's also a hassle. Well, uh, that, not, and like, you can't, t- you just can't shoot a
1: thousand photos. Like, however, if, you can't shoot yeah. them like, like, you'd have to have a burst mode on Polaroid. Okay, there's no burst mode. You take the shot once, yeah, and then true. it spits it out, and you better you have to wait. Right. So you better make sure whatever subject you have, which better be a bowl of fruit that's not moving, that's gonna be fine, or a very still subject because it's not right. exactly like pet friendly unless your dog sits nicely and is trained, like not like mine.
0: Right. Or or you uh, also you should know you do not have to shake it, unlike the song. You do not need to shake. A Polaroid picture yes, that, to develop. That great hymn. I remember that. Yeah. Well, that wraps up the list that was online. We have a few more that we were just gonna mention uh from our own experience. My first one was the capacitance electronic disc. Did you did you ever see these? Do you know what this is?
1: I looked it up because I saw it on your list of things and I actually have seen them. Yeah. It turns out it they look like giant floppy disks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they. Uh, I thought of them as being about the size of a vinyl album record cover, right? Except made out of a, a semi-rigid plastic, uh, and there was actually a disc on the inside of it that you didn't see because it would it would get pulled out when you put the uh, the whole case into like it's essentially a cartridge into a player, and then it would remove the disc and play it. It's called a capacitance electronic disc because it actually had a physical needle. They would read the disc through electronic capacitance. So it was kind of uh, in between a vinyl album that uses a physical needle and a laser disc, which uses an optical laser to read information. It was kind of like in between those. It was less expensive than the laser disc. Uh, It's also less expensive, I think, than VHS tapes were originally. But you couldn't write to them. You could only read. It was read only. And uh, each side of a capacitance electronic disc could hold about an hour's worth of material. So you would watch a movie and halfway through the film, it would stop and you'd have to eject the, the cartridge, flip it over and put it back in to watch the rest of it. Uh, to this day, I can remember precisely where our copy of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark stopped. It stopped right after Sala says they're digging in the wrong place then the video would stop i'd have to turn the disc over and and watch the rest of raiders so it left a lasting impression on me uh, ultimately it did not succeed in the market it went obsolete pretty quickly in fact you might even argue that the word obsolete isn't uh, accurate because it never rose to prominence so perhaps obsolete is giving it too much credit but i have a soft spot in my heart for that particular piece of technology
1: i haven't uh, had the same experience as you so i i've I... I don't know how that would be growing up.
0: Well, uh, it was a magical time, I Uh As for other types of obsolete technology, I'm just going to lump a bunch of these together and mention the ones that I kind of thought sort of might fit obsolete. Like a lot of those ports, like the parallel ports you were mentioning, Ayaz, a lot of those have largely been rendered obsolete by USB ports. Uh USB has really taken over. And so we don't really necessarily need all those other ones these days. Uh, in fact, it's been a long time since I've bought any technology that required me to plug uh, something else in. It's almost all, you know, just plug and play with the USB these days. I mean, there still are some out there. It's not. I don't mean to suggest that they're all uh, USB. That's not the case, but a large number of them are. Uh, answering machines also, because now we've got things like digital voicemail. Uh, MP3 players, I think, are fading away because, again, we have devices like smartphones that allow us to either stream music or store it natively on a device, so there's less need for a dedicated MP3 player. Um, The analog television broadcasts, we mentioned that in the last episode, that transition from analog to digital caused a huge headache back in 2009. There was a lot of confusion about whether or not you would still be able to watch TV and who needed to have a an adapter, and who didn't need to have an adapter. Uh, Were you covering technology back at that time? Yeah, I was, and
1: I was very into this back then. And I I believe it got delayed for a a lot of months, maybe even a year. I can't remember how long the delay was. But I I found it just amazing that people were confused because the amount of advertising that was done about this transition, this change that's going to happen, it's going to happen, it was like, it's going to be this set date, and then it was pushed off by three months. So you should have been up to date at that point, but you weren't. A lot of people weren't. Um, I just couldn't believe how many people were left in the dark. On top of that, the transition caused so many issues when it came to just being able to receive a signal. Because when it was analog, if you were far enough away, you'd get a signal, but it'd be very weak. And you'd get kind of snowy kind of stuff going on, or a lot of ghosting going on with right. the images. So, But you'd get something with the transition you either got signal or you got nothing. Yep. And so the the blacked out version of this added to the fact that these waves didn't travel as far through buildings that was a huge problem for a while seems like with the uh, with the years have gone by a lot of that's been alleviated by different positioning of towers and things so that mm-hmm. you can get a place like New York City where I am you can still get signal because for a while if you were like on the wrong side of the building, you were not getting like Fox, and right. that's been now fixed. So it was a it was a very interesting time that I thought would have gone a lot worse. I think the government had this program as well where you could get a converter box for a set. I think it was like fifty dollars or less than that if you wanted to still use your old TV. And um, it was it was an interesting time, and I don't think a lot of people remember it anymore because it's a lot of people were on cable at that point, so it didn't affect them directly because they were still using their boxes.
0: Right. I, uh, I remember covering this as well and, and seeing the confusion that was around it. We, one of our first tech stuff podcasts was about this very topic. Uh, Chris Palette and I did a topic about it to talk about who needed it and who didn't. Cause there was a lot of confusion, even for people who just had cable television. They were wondering if they needed to have some sort of converter box. And there were, there were some manufacturers that were kind of preying on ignorance at the time too in order to sell devices that weren't needed to customers who who were fine where they were. But uh, I'm glad that that finally went through. Also, it's an interesting entry on the list, because unlike a lot of the other ones where the obsolescence came about as just the fact that people moved on to other technologies, this one was a forced obsolescence. There was no choice in the matter. It wasn't that people necessarily moved on to something else. It was that that thing no longer was supported.
1: Yeah, that was a uh, it was a good time. So now we've got now we have nice, beautiful uh, multicast channels. You can get to 4.1, 4.2, all these other things. We have all the airwaves freed up for things like wireless communication, which makes it a lot nicer.
0: Right. And then you have uh, your own entry down here, too, right?
1: Yes. My favorite piece of obsolete technology is the UMPC. This was an initiative by Microsoft, and I believe Intel at the time, uh, it was a Oh geez, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but it was a while ago. I'd say at least uh, maybe eight years ago. The mm-hmm. UMPC was the ultra mobile PC. It was a tiny, full fledged computer that was about the size of a Sega Game Gear. If you if you want to actually have a size comparison, or think of a really really fat seven inch tablet, because it was a pretty hefty device. And you have this touch screen in the middle. Some devices used to have on screen keyboards only, where you could just tap and you'd get like these semicircular keys on the left and right so you can do thumb typing or you get a more traditional keyboard that would come up kind of like a tablet today has or phone has and this was way ahead of its time because they were cramming in like pretty much laptop processors in these devices with like a six inch screen with a full operating system and so you would get like two or three hours of battery life and it was about a grand or so so it was very expensive and for me, I've always had this dream of being able to just have one device, one computer that I can carry with me anywhere I go. And then, crazily enough, like come home and dock it. And that's what the thing's supposed to be. And it didn't take off because of the, a lot of the things I mentioned, the battery life, the price, and it's just, it just couldn't do it. Did you have experiences with UMPCs?
0: I, uh, only, only tangentially. I never owned one. Uh, I had read a lot of the, the, drawbacks and I never got into it. They were also really expensive. Uh, and I, so they were kind of out of my price range. They were, uh, there were enough drawbacks where I, I couldn't see them being that useful. Uh, I liked where it was going and I thought that that was going to be an entire like line of technology that we would see improve over time and continually, uh, continue to take advantage of things like miniaturization, uh, battery improvement, that sort of stuff. I really thought that's where things were going to head. And then, sort of I think cloud computing took a lot of the the need for that out you know as as you started to offload the actual processing onto other uh, platforms you didn't need to have a device that could do it itself you had all these other things that could do the work for you you just needed a device to be able to access that stuff and so uh, I think that was a large part of why this never really took off it wasn't just the drawbacks which I think You could eventually engineer your way around, uh, or at least try and create as efficient a system as possible so that it was still useful. It was that it largely became moot.
1: I still, I think the drawbacks were just gigantic when it came to using a, it was a full fledged desktop operating system that you're using on a very small screen. So it wasn't exactly optimized. I know Windows XP, they did have a tablet edition That's, I believe was running on the number of these devices. So it was capable of being worked with with a stylus, but a lot of the work you would want to do on a desktop computer, you wouldn't want to do on a device like this. And like you're saying with engineering, we've seen a lot of things happen where like smartphones now are optimized applications that made those things seem like they were going, they, they would move fast. And Mm -hmm. if you had a desktop computer versus a UMPC, you would know what it was like for this application to run fast. And there was a lot of pain when it came to this idea of trying to be productive on this small device. I think the smartphone is the successor in some kind of way to the UMPC because it does pretty much everything you want. And with the larger screens that are happening and multitasking on Android phones, like I mean, actual like windowed multitasking. That's so close to this thing that I wanted where you can pair it with a Bluetooth uh, keyboard and you can just prop this up and you can use it as a full-fledged machine. Uh But yeah, the, the UMPC was one of Microsoft's early initiatives that failed. They were ahead of a lot of things. including tablet PCs, the first gen of that was really awesome. Uh But yeah, Microsoft, whatever they are doing, pay attention to them because they're yeah. usually way ahead. Yeah. They're way usually ahead.
0: Pay attention to them and then wait a couple of years for Apple to do it and then go out and buy it.
1: Exactly, and then Microsoft will try to copy it again. But then again, there is this. Uh, as we're recording this, there's a lot of news about Windows 10, and basically, you're going to have a full fledged desktop operating system in your phone and Windows Phone, and the apps are going to run cross platform. So maybe I will get my wish, where I can just dock a phone and use it as a computer. Although I don't know if I need to do that anymore.
0: No, we we've seen we've seen some implementations of that technology over the last few years of people trying to do that. And each of them were, you know, you could see where the promise was, but it never quite clicked properly. Uh, I remember seeing the these smartphones that were, uh, you know, you would plug it into a docking station, and you could even, uh, have a a larger display running, you know, so that you could, you could look at a larger display, use a a separate keyboard, but it's all running off the processor of the smartphone. Uh, but you know, we never got to an implementation that really met the needs and the price point for the, the consumer. So
1: maybe we'll see it. That was the uh, Motorola Atrix, I think. That was like one of the first yeah. ones that, that allowed this. Yeah. And I remember like I was drooling over a patent application that Apple had where you could just pop an iPod into your computer and that would yeah. make it your computer, like a giant yeah. cartridge. I'm like, that's brilliant. But that never happened, obviously. So it's it's these, uh, the future for me is kind of like the, with what you're talking about, everything being cloud-based. Being able to log in and have all your settings, kind of like a Chromebook experience, mm-hmm. that's getting closer to this kind of every computer is your computer as opposed to I carry my little device.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, this was a great discussion about technology that doesn't matter anymore. I'm, I'm glad that we could have this conversation. Uh, Ayaz, for <laughs> all of my fans out there who want to follow the stuff you do, where do they find you? I
1: suggest twitter.com slash ayaz. That's i y a z, as in zebra. Uh, I got on Twitter early, so I still have that uh, username. Even though there's a very famous musician who goes by the same name, and if you're writing to him and you you're just hearing this podcast and you find out there's another ayaz, I had the name first, and uh, that's that's a, that's a stage name for him, by the way. So it's even weirder that he picked it. So they want to follow me, my ramblings, go to Twitter or go to CNET.com. I do stuff there. Uh, it's kind of a well-known place. CNET.com. Yeah. Lots of product reviews and how-tos and news all in one
0: fantastic site. Thank you so much, Ayaz. And thank you guys for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, let me know what sort of topics you want me to cover in the future. If there are any guests you want me to have on the show or just anything along those lines, send me a message. My email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is techstuffhsw, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on
1: this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two.